fostering empathy is one of the most important things we can do. It's also why I think I'm optimistic for the future of this world because one thing this pandemic has forced us to do is communicate virtually and it has broken down even further the barriers between borders. And as a result, once we start talking to each other, we realize we can probably get along. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Different Boats, Same Storm, a podcast aimed at kindling empathy in this global pandemic. My name is Atharv. And my name is Abe, and we're so excited to have our guest here today. COVID-19 is above all a humanitarian crisis, and Different Boats, Same Storm is centered around fostering discussion about perspectives and the innate human experiences that often lie in the shadows of mainstream discourse. Every week, same time, different guests, Different boat, same storm. Thank you so much, Shil Paya, for being with us today. Today, our guest, as I mentioned, is Shil Thayal. Now, Paya, we go a long way back, uh, of course, as family. But we met only once, if you remember. You came to Mumbai. I think you just graduated from college. I was in primary school. And clearly, we've both come a long way since then. And I know most of it, if not all, but I'm going to let you take the floor right now and introduce yourself as you see fit. Well, thank you. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm really glad you guys are doing this. I think it is a really important topic, especially given the times that we're in. Uh, and I, so I appreciate you guys taking the initiative. So my story, let's see, I, I can start with my parents, uh, who I think you know. You know, I'm the son of Indian immigrants. Uh, I was born and raised in the U.S. We were, I was born in San Diego. We moved around a lot as a kid. Houston, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, sort of all over the place. Largely because my parents, when they came from India, they had moved 10,000 plus miles. And anytime there was a new opportunity in America, they would say, oh, just another couple hundred miles, let's go. You know, So every time we would pack up the bags, we would go. I was the new kid frequently. I went to three different middle schools and middle school only has three years. Uh, I went to, you know, high school was the only place of stability for us. And that was largely because my mom eventually said, we're done moving. So we finally had some stability. Uh, I went to Stanford and got really inspired by entrepreneurship. You know, one thing I learned is that uh, capitalism, if done correctly, can be an amazing means of social change. And that was important to me largely because my parents made me realize from an early age that we had been given so much more than they ever had. And uh, it was through their hard work and perseverance that we had the opportunities that we had and continue to have today. Uh, and so we can either just take that for granted or we can try and give folks like them a similar shot, the next generation of folks like my parents, uh, an equivalent shot. And what ultimately drew me to entrepreneurship was the fact that to me, Entrepreneurship, if done correctly, can be a way to create that sort of societal change, the way to create that opportunity at a mass level, in a sustainable way. Uh, and I studied multiple companies, domestically, globally, companies ranging from African mobile carriers uh, to you know technology businesses in America to India, sort of all over. And the common thread that I saw between all of these stories was usually you would have a person with an unbelievable idea. And, but, but that was not enough, right? I mean, the idea was something that in some sense was table stakes. Other than the idea, they had this passion and they had this drive and ultimately that drive and passion led them to create something transformational. Other than that person, which I, I now realize or at the time realized was an entrepreneur, other than the entrepreneur you had a supporting group of people, right? And that those people included investors, it included family members, uh, essentially this whole ecosystem that allowed these people to thrive. And so as I studied stories like Google or Celtel or sort of you name it, uh, I realized that that's what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to help build companies that were transformational, that completely transformed how people lived, that created jobs for people in places where unemployment may be high, uh, that, you know, just changed how all of us went on a daily basis living our lives. And so that's what I did. You know, ultimately, I, I ended up becoming first an entrepreneur and then a venture capitalist myself. As a venture capitalist, what I do is I fund 
I work with and fund businesses from inception to try and take them all the way to uh, something that the rest of us actually use. And the majority of them fail, you know, like actually probably the vast majority of them fail, but if they work, they have the ability to just change the world. And so that's, that's what inspires me every day. And I'm really excited to be doing it. Wow. That's, that's a super interesting story. And I, you know, while I can't relate to the fullest extent, I was 11 months old when my family and I moved here from India. I was born in Amritsar, but I moved here to Surrey, BC. Uh, I, I think what, what my story was, I was very fortunate in that, you know, my, my older brother was seven or like eight years old when he moved and he faced a lot of these challenges. He was bullied in school. He didn't have a lot of opportunities. And I grew up at a time when, you know, my parents and by the time my brother was around 15, 16, my parents really wanted us to take full advantage of all these new opportunities our new country had given us. And uh, I think that idea of taking advantage and giving back to your community is so powerful. You know, I find it interesting, though, one thing that you said twice there is capitalism and entrepreneurship, if done right, can create change and create positive social change. What do you mean by capitalism and entrepreneurship done right? So I think capitalism can solve a lot of problems, but it doesn't solve every problem. You know, I, I went to law school and uh, the reason I went to law school is because I learned that capitalism doesn't solve every problem. So for example, uh, criminal justice in America is totally broken. You know, we incarcerate more people than any other country. And by the way, we're not the biggest country in the world, right? So either we are just bad people or we have a broken criminal justice system. I can't come up with a company to solve that problem. You know, immigration, another issue in our country that's totally broken can't come up with a company to necessarily solve that problem. Although interestingly enough, we now have a company that's trying to automate the process of people applying for visa, <laughs> but that's just one part of the problem. The point is gun control, you know, another, another big issue in America. Uh, it's, it's a huge problem. And for some reason, uh, there isn't a business that can necessarily solve it. So for me, what I learned is that uh, there are numerous issues with either businesses inherently, for example, when, when a business has a negative externality, right? An environmental negative externality. There are issues that can't necessarily be solved through capitalism and capitalism alone. And then there are societal issues that can't be necessarily solved through entrepreneurship or capitalism. And so that's why I, I made the distinction of done correctly, because I feel like people will often try and tackle problems that can't necessarily be solved through business. I mean, you have to solve it through law and policy and advocacy. And then there are also issues where people do create a great company, but that company actually causes more harm than good, you know? And so that's not necessarily uh, what I would consider entrepreneurship done well. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, absolutely. It's a hard balance to strike, right? Because <laughs> the thing with most of these consequences is that you find out too late into whatever you're doing. And the whole, when, you, when, when we study public policy, uh, past dependency is such a contentious issue because um, you don't know the results, the true results of what you're doing until you're too far down the road. And then it's, it's either too expensive to turn back um, if you're even fortunate enough to have that option in the first place. Uh, so I guess my question to you then is, how do you go about finding that right balance? You know, what we do, so I run a venture capital firm called Ampla, which I started in 2017. And our mission is to invest in entrepreneurs who are uh, three factors. Young, not in age, but how you think. We want people to be nimble, adaptable, etc. Global in their ambitions, because we believe global companies are what are going to matter today. And great entrepreneurship, we believe, can come from anywhere. Uh, and third and most important, we want companies that matter. So for us, an entrepreneur who's motivated by money isn't going to make any. But an entrepreneur who's motivated by solving a really big problem is going to get through the hard times, is going to say no to acquisition offers, is going to hire people when they can't really afford to pay them <laughs> uh, market salaries, right? Basically, they're, they're going to get through the hard times to actually build something meaningful. 
And that's what we look for. And we find that if you have those traits, and in particular the third trait, then you're usually solving a real problem. And you know, I'm, I'm very proud of some of the companies in our own portfolio that are doing that. Uh, for example, we have a mental health company trying to democratize access to mental health. Uh, we have a company that is trying to democratize access to financial services. We have a company using artificial intelligence for disaster response. So we have companies that are solving, in my opinion, very real, not top 1% problems, but like problems that all of us face. Mm. Yeah. I was really attracted to this one thing that you said was trying to get through the hard times and willing to go through the hard times in order to create something meaningful. And I feel like this pandemic is probably the most ideal situation or the most present situation for us to adopt this in our lives. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on uh, create, fostering such an environment around you and trying to kindle that fire within you as well to get through these hard times and be willing to do that in order to create something meaningful. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one thing that's interesting is some of the best companies in the world actually started during times like this. And when I say during times like this, I mean recessions, high unemployment, people thinking the world is going to end, right? And I don't know why. There actually could be a number of different reasons why it happens. One hypothesis of mine is because those who ultimately survive this period are the grittiest of all, right? I mean, that's sort of hypothesis one. Hypothesis two is that there's a high unemployment. So a lot of people have time to experiment who uh, may otherwise not be experimenting out of necessity because they have Mm -hmm. to, right? So I actually think that the optimist in me thinks some of the most dramatic innovation we may see over the next 20 years will be built by companies started today. And as a result, I'm, I'm as excited as ever to be talking to entrepreneurs. You know, if you're spending your time during the, in the middle of a pandemic building something that's touching real people's lives, good on you, right? Because you are doing something that's not easy, uh, that is going to be challenging, especially if it requires some sort of in-person element. But if you're able to survive this period, you can probably survive any period. Yeah, that's, that's such a great idea. I mean, right now, during the struggles that people are having, you make a very real point that, you know, if people are unemployed, they have that time to maybe do something that they wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, not not at the same level, but this podcast really was born out of the fact that our summers were changed. Uh, Tarv and I were supposed to be in Israel this summer, actually. Um, I, I know Eli had so many other plans, and the fact that all of that stopped changed our lives. And I'm very curious, what is your life like as, you know, day-to-day as a venture capitalist, and how has that been impacted by COVID-19? So pre-COVID, my life was pretty nomadic. You know, I technically <laughs> live in Houston, Texas, although the reality is I'm a nomad. I mean, I was outside the US probably half my time, if not two thirds of my time. And then when I was in the US, I was, I was running around largely because our companies are all over the country and the world, as well as our investor base is a global investor base. A uh, number of my venture partners, my board partners are global. And so previously, the day-to-day for me was meeting, meeting my companies, meeting my investors, meeting future potential companies of ours, uh, meeting my team, right? It was just meetings all day. In other words, I was doing no real work. I was just <laughs> meeting people. And now, uh, now it's the opposite. You know, I, I'm in one place. I have been in one place for a long time. I am like a bird with my wings clipped off <laughs> and I am loving it. You know, it's, it's great to be able to spend time with family. I'm, I'm in Houston with, with the family where my parents are. And I feel like I'm actually doing real work because I'm not really doing that many meetings because I can't, right? <laughs> and so I'm taking time to read. I'm talking extensively with people I've known for a long time and just really diving into what COVID means for the future of innovation and in particular, what it means for specific sectors that we're involved with, uh, what opportunities will arise from that. And we've also gone pretty early stage. I mean, a number of the stuff that we have 
done over the past six months, on average, it is actually earlier stage than we normally do because we think now is a great time to be incubating things or investing in new projects. You know? So uh, the life, I would say the lifestyle has changed and the exact type of work has probably shifted a little bit. But the, the goal is the same. I mean, the goal is build transformational companies that hopefully if they work, people will hear about. I mean, I think it's wonderful that um, your situation has been that you went from doing no work in your own words to <laughs> actually doing work of value. Because um, a lot of people that you usually speak to in these times, they're distraught, rightfully so, because their life as they know it has changed and more often than not it's not for the better at least that's what it looks like on the onset but the fact that you're able to adapt and innovate so quickly to this massive change is i think this wonderful testament to the tenacity of humans to innovate and adapt and accommodate to their just dynamic circumstances but you know with that in mind it's still a hard time for everybody because uh, life is just not the same anymore. And one thing that I'm very fascinated by is how we've been finding joy in small things that we probably wouldn't even focus on in our pre-pandemic lives. So I'm curious as to what that is for you. What brings you joy in these times? Yeah, I, look, I think... For those of us who are fortunate to be able to spend this time with family, and not everybody is fortunate enough to be able to either be together with family or to be in a situation where uh, they even physically can be, you know, or financially, or financially can be. Thankfully, Thankfully we, are we are in a situation where we are able, able to sort of quarantine together. And the advantage of that is quality time that we probably would have never had but for this, yeah. right? And it's sort of like we're going back to high school. <laughs> and we're, we're falling into some of the same patterns, which, uh, which some are good, some are not good. The good is I get great cooking. Uh, the bad is I take that for granted, right? <laughs> and so, but, but to be honest, it's, there are some things that, I, small things that I cherish. So for example, every morning I've been playing tennis with my brother. And that has been a lot of fun. We, we previously were both pretty nomadic. Mm. We would be lucky if we would spend, you know, a few weeks a year together. And we certainly, if we were to play tennis, we would stink because we hadn't picked up a racket in months. <laughs> and now, because we're playing every day, we're back in it. You know, we feel like we're getting fit again. We feel like we're playing well again. So that's fun. Another little thing is we'll, every Monday we, we make pizzas. And so our pizza has gotten better. <laughs> And it's just a nice, fun activity to be able to, to do with family. So, uh, honestly, like, in, in retrospect, of course, I don't wish the pandemic would have ravaged the world the way it did and affected the number of people it did. But there are silver linings in, in even the worst situations. And I think the silver lining for us has been the quality time we've been able to spend with each other. And considering those silver linings, like, I know we're all grateful for some things during these times. And it's good to look at that. Those positive aspects, Those positive I think that optimism is so important. Optimism. Considering all that, moving forward now, are you optimistic for the future? I am very optimistic for a number of reasons. I think, so it, it depends on, it depends on sort of the group that you're, you're looking at or thinking of. You know, I am generally optimistic for the world because I feel like this has, this, this experience has in some ways exacerbated bad leadership mm -hmm. and made you realize how rare and how important good leadership is. And I feel like the average person has started to realize that, you know? And if you just look at a country by country basis, it has been one of the most normalizing things of all time where the same disease has had dramatically different impacts just based on the border, right? And so anyway, it, I feel like that has been net positive for the world because I feel like people have started to realize that bad leadership has real consequences. I think it, it has incited, it has also uh, inspired a new generation of young leaders to, to take over. Uh, and it has really honed in on some of the major problems 
that have under, uh, you know, that have essentially been a part of our society for a long time, whether it's racial issues or, uh, you know, obviously pandemic preparedness or many others, actually, safety nets for, for those who are unemployed. So generally, I am very optimistic because I feel like sometimes it takes somebody to slap you to make you realize that you were wrong, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so I feel like we were slapped. And I also think that it, it is humbling. Yeah. I mean, a, a disease like this, a, a time like this is humbling because especially for folks who were complacent, who thought they were good, doesn't matter, you know? I feel like this has, this has made people realize you can't be complacent. You always have to improve as a city, state, country, society, you know, you sort of name it. I also think that this has forced young people especially to become even more innovative. You know, I mean, they, technology has leapt so far ahead over the last six months, it's crazy to see. And as a result, all people from senior citizens all the way to folks who were born during the pandemic are going to accelerate their adoption of technology at a rate that even the most optimistic technologists probably wouldn't have, predict, wouldn't have predicted because they have to, right? There's no other choice. So as a result, you know, net net, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. I, I do think we will have a vaccine sooner than not. Uh, I do think the social distancing has helped. I do think folks finally wearing masks is positive, uh, but they're still gonna. T- it's still gonna take time for everybody to, to get their heads around. I also think you know this is a little thing, but the return of sports has been a big deal. I feel like people finally have something to root for again, and I mean you know we have sports on all day, and so it's it's great. It, it's just it's a lot of fun. Uh, even though there's no fans, it, there's a camaraderie that's starting to emerge again. And I feel like that was one of the biggest issues in the first couple of months of the pandemic, where everything was canceled, you know, <laughs> and you had nothing you could do. I mean, you, all you could do is binge watch old serials on Netflix. But now, at least, there is a normalcy that's starting to return in parts of our lives. The, the Wednesday before school actually got shut down for us at the University of Toronto, that was when the NHL got cancelled. And, and the day before that was when the NBA got cancelled. So that was a Tuesday and Wednesday, I remember so distinctly, because I was looking forward to watching a hockey game that night, and, and I couldn't. And I, I totally agree that the return of hockey, basketball, all these sports that we, that we love... that that's just been so huge for me individually and i know it's been so big for so many other people i think that's when the pandemic got real for folks in america (laughs) which was when the nba was canceled you know yeah Yeah. i mean i remember i remember sitting i remember exactly where i was when i saw the headline the nba is canceled and then march madness was canceled and there was sort Mm. i mean you know it should have it should have been earlier when thousands of cases were happening and people were dying but for some reason, it took sports to be canceled for people to start taking this seriously, you know. But anyway, it was. It, I'm I'm just glad that that sports trying to come back. People are trying to be more careful, and I'm I'm optimistic. You know, it's funny when you mentioned that technological adaptation has the learning curve has just become so much more easier for everybody. Not because of an increase in human capability, but just because of the necessity that comes with it. I remember the three of us were having a conversation a while back thinking that if we were to do this podcast in pre-pandemic times, trying to explain the concept of Zoom and the, the idea of a video podcast in itself would have been such an uphill ride. But now we've had septuagenarian professors and academics handle Zoom and just everything else that comes with it, the technology with such ease, it's fascinating. And I think it alludes to the point that uh, you were making, that when we're put up against a wall um, and there is that slap to the face, you realize what you're doing Hmm. wrong and you end up adapting and improvising. And I think you're right. Optimism is what we need right now. And it's it's funny. You're one of the few people who's actually been blatantly optimistic because... Everybody else that we speak to, 
there's concerns about, you know, the distribution of the va- the vaccine, and just the damage that's already been done and the kind of work that we're going to have to put in to get to where we were before this all happened. But I guess optimism is what we need to even try and care enough to do something about it. Yeah, look, we have massive things we need to fix, massive problems, inequities that we need to fix, but nobody's ever won by betting against the human spirit, right? So as long as you bet on the human spirit, over time, we will figure it out. So that's why I'm mm-hmm. optimistic. I'm not saying everything's perfect. In fact, everything's far from perfect. But I do believe in our ability to solve it. Mm-hmm. And that's why you yeah, like the awesome. vaccine distribution thing. That's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem mm-hmm. domestically. It's going to be a problem globally. There's going to be hoarding. Mm-hmm. There's probably going to be misinformation. There's going to be all sorts of stuff. Uh, pricing, who knows how the pricing is going to work with that. And so that's going to be an issue. But I trust that we will hopefully figure this out. I do think that certain countries will do a way better job than other countries. Uh, but let's see, you know, l- l- let's see what happens. I mean, part of the issue is so many people in America have already gotten COVID that even if it does take a while to distribute vaccines, it's going to be okay, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, unfortunately. But anyway, yeah, I, I, think, I think we'll figure this out. I guess we have yeah, to. Yeah, but I'm here. Yeah, we have to. That's the thing, right? Like despite all these problems and the inequities being exasperated and all these problems, we don't really have a choice but to figure it out. And like you said, you can't bet against the human spirit. Uh, We've solved these problems in the past and these are just new hurdles to climb. I agree. You guys in Canada have done a great job. I mean, you know, it's just a great example of a a border that that has, has been pretty extraordinary. You know, there's still a lot of uh, Americans uh, traveling to Canada through the Alaska loophole. So uh, when they get to the border, they're just like, oh, we're going to Alaska. And the Canadian border people can't can't stop them legally. And then you have, uh, you know, cars from Nebraska and Washington State and like British Columbia and Alberta. And uh, what can you do? It's amazing. By the way, it was quite a humbling moment, you know, when all these countries banned Americans. It's like, no. yeah. <laughs> it's like Trump is all about, oh, we're going to ban this, we're going to ban that. And now everybody's just banning Americans. And so it, it, is, it is a little bit of karma. And I feel like, mm-hmm. once again, that is, that is the humbling element that, wait a second, we thought we were wanted. We thought we would spend money and they would want our tourism dollars. Nope. They think we're diseased. They think, you know, they don't want us. So it's, I actually, you know, once again, I wish the pandemic didn't happen. But I do like mm. that we are getting humbled. Everybody needs a little humbling every now and then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, now that you mentioned that, it's funny how some countries that you probably would not even take a second look at in other times are the highlights. Now, who would have thought that New Zealand would be a talking point in global politics? But yet, it's all that most people can talk about, and for good reason. And at the same time, the countries that you would usually talk about are being talked about for sure, but for all the wrong reasons. And it's like, to me, it's, it's almost, it's fascinating that it took a global pandemic for that shift to take place. But I guess you need something of that scale to bring about that shift. And I'm wondering what implications that would have when we do get out of this pandemic. Yeah. I mean, first of all, Prime Minister Ardern is a total stud. She is mm. just, I mean, world-class. Yeah. I would trade her for our president anyway. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so it, actually one interesting thing that I have seen is countries run by women during the pandemic mm. have solved the pandemic in a way that male-led countries just haven't. I mean, if you look at the results of New Zealand, Germany, mm. Finland, and a few other, Taiwan, uh, it's, it's just all women-led, all on average, probably not even on average, probably they are all top decile, if not top like one percentile in, in their uh, sort of every metric that you look at in terms of success, whether it's mm-hmm. case transmission, death rate, et cetera, et cetera. They've, they've, mm-hmm. they've, you know, just, they've been the best. And so I'm actually glad that these stories are emerging because people often talk about politics and all they care about are the biggest countries because 
that's what's on the news all day. But mm-hmm. this has highlighted the incredible leadership coming out of many countries, but especially women-led countries. And I think folks are starting to realize that, hopefully, folks are starting to realize that, uh, you know, we need more leaders that are different. We need more leaders who think differently, who are data-driven. We need more female leaders. We need just more educated leaders, you know. And I'm actually really glad that countries like New Zealand are uh, being seen as the poster child of success. I was actually in New Zealand on February 1st, and I flew back from Auckland. I was in Australia almost all of January, actually all of January, and then I was in New Zealand for, for a bit. It's, people think it's remote, and therefore it's easy that they solved it. It ain't remote. I mean, people are coming. Yes, it's far, but that doesn't mean it's remote. You know, people are coming. Everybody thinks New Zealand's paradise. And so people are flying from all over the world all the time to New Zealand. I mean, there are flights from China all the time, obviously Australia all the time, America. I mean, there are flights from everywhere. And so what they accomplished and continue to accomplish is pretty extraordinary. It's not that easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think on that point, obviously liberation table. Need- Hmm. Yeah. And on that point, you know, you look at New Zealand and people can say, oh, it's an outlier because they had and they had a head start. Like you said, you look at Taiwan, you look at Germany, two countries that were hit pretty badly by the pandemic in the beginning, but they accelerated testing and they got things under control. Yeah. Accelerated testing, strong contract, uh, contact tracing. You know, the leaders were very direct with their population as to how real this issue was and how it was patriotic of them of their it was patriotic of every citizen to take this really seriously they they were very drastic in their measures from the very mm-hmm. beginning you know i remember uh, prime minister arden got a bunch of heat for essentially shutting down the country when they had like five cases or whatever it was uh, but in retrospect she was right you know and so i mean it's just it's just been pretty extraordinary to see different leadership having drastically different human consequences. I mean, in my lifetime, I'm not sure I've ever seen anything like it, where different leadership has this dramatic of a difference on outcomes of individual human lives. Maybe the only other exception is countries going to war. But even then, I mean, this this has had far more of an impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. And I think more than a war um we feel this a lot more in the remotest of locations in a war if you're say in the center of the country not on the borders you don't feel the situation as much but the pandemic it's real everybody's feeling it uh because it's just it's everywhere yeah exactly exactly you go to the war but the pandemic comes to you that's uh i think that's what makes this so much more pronounced uh speaking of things Coming to us, though, I think it's now time that we bring Eli on. Um, Eli, jump in. Hi, everybody. Um, this has been a great conversation so far. I was going to say, I, I love your Zoom setup. You have a great Zoom background. A very, you know, a very I like to pretend Zoom. I read books. And so <laughs> I decided to have a... No, the reality is I've actually... The, the other great benefit of this pandemic has been... I've actually caught up on a lot of reading. You know, so yeah. it's been uh, it's been fun. This is also yeah. the only place in my house that looks decent. So <laughs> otherwise, you would be staring at a blank wall, or it wouldn't be centered. So yeah. I've gotten advice yeah. that I need to. You have a, you have a big book. Napoleon book right by your head, and so I've spent half this call trying to come up with parallels between you and Napoleon, wondering if I could come up with something witty and snappy. But I love I it. Haven't. I love it. I also have good night mode up there somewhere. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you a question, um, on more of a personal level about as an entrepreneur, how, how I can imagine being greeted by a fair deal of skepticism when you express that as an ambition. I don't know how early on in your career you started suggesting that that's the the path you wanted to go down. Then I realized, you know, you probably get less raised eyebrows when you're at Stanford, but the question (laughs) might still hold. Um, what was, I mean... It seems particularly relevant to me now, considering how we're all kind of submerged in this weird swamp of instability. And to me, whenever you say you want to be an artist, a f- filmmaker, or an entrepreneur, 
you are greeted with that, you better know what you're doing. So I'm wondering, on a, on a personal level, despite your Stanford education, if you ever were faced with that kind of um, skepticism. Yeah, so first of all, I actually think entrepreneurship has nothing to do with where you went to school or what you look like or how old you are. You know, I think entrepreneurship can be the great equalizer. If you have, which is, by the way, why there's so many dropouts who are successful entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where as long as you have a good idea coupled with strong tenacity and perseverance, you can be a great entrepreneur. What degree you had or have or might have had Customers don't care, you know, like who cares? Nobody uses Facebook because Zuckerberg went to Harvard, right? So yeah. it's just one of those things where as long as it's a really good product that people are going to use, mm-hmm. you're an entrepreneur. So I actually think that the people who show skepticism towards entrepreneurs based mm-hmm. on what they look like or how old they are, or where they went to school are haters that you should take motivation from. Because there will always be those people. And I actually think that when an entrepreneur goes to somebody and that person and every single person, if an entrepreneur gets unanimous consent that this is something that they should pursue, then they should be wondering what's wrong. Because if everybody thinks it's a great idea, something's up. You know? The biggest companies in the world were usually dismissed by many, many people and many industries and and uh, and people just didn't take it seriously until they were forced to. Mm-hmm. Well, you'd mentioned at the beginning that one of your criteria for uh, a company that you see as most likely to achieve success is one that has an idea that matters. And I'm, I guess I'm wondering, what is, what is the, because I think I, I know I've met plenty of people with really great ideas, but one of the things I was discussing in a previous um, podcast episode was, what is the difference between people who have really great ideas and people who are able to realize them? And I imagine you might have some insight on, on what it takes to, to make that leap. Yeah, I mean, to me, ideas are important, but they're in some ways a dime a dozen, right? Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, all that really matters is your ability to execute on the idea. Yeah. And what I have found is execution or the ability to execute comes from a number of different, mostly qualitative uh, sort of metrics or person, I guess, characteristics of a person. You know, one of the things that I look for whenever I invest in a company is how thoughtful is that founder? How much have they thought about every single issue as it relates to their business? For example, are they thinking about the competition? Are they thinking about hiring? What is the hiring looking like? Are they able to attract people that are more impressive than they are, right? I look for all of these things that make me realize or make me, I guess, give me more comfort in their ability to execute Mm -hmm. because my job is picking the winners before they're winners right and so i'm just looking for indicators of success Mm. that help the probability increase that doesn't mean the probability will ever be 100 percent because something could always go wrong but it's these qualitative things that i look for once the company's working then it's just a financial thing right then you're just basically buying a stock but that's less fun, you know? I yeah. mean, it was way more fun is figuring it out when they're, you know, two guys or two girls in a PowerPoint somewhere and nobody really is taking them seriously. That's mm-hmm. when it's really hard, but that's when you can also get rewarded. Mm-hmm. Well, that speaks to me. I, I do, um, I'm in cinema studies at U of T and, and I make, I've made a, a few short films in my short-lived career. And one of the things as a director that you learn to do very quickly is is similar to what you're saying, I think, which is people have to be able to step into a room to audition for you. And based on how they present themselves, even before they start reading their audition side, you need to come to some kind of conclusion about who they are, what they have to offer, and, and if they're going to collaborate with you well. And and so that process of, like you say, determining a winner before they're a winner, what what is it that you look for and how... How have you found that the, the people who have been most successful have been able to present themselves, especially in a time where presenting ourselves, I think, comes with this weight of, I mean, skepticism, but also this kind of like, are you being authentic with me? That's something I've been focusing on a lot is authenticity, especially now that most of our relations are online and we don't have access to a lot of what gives us trust and comfort in a person being in person. 
it's really this element of thoughtfulness. You know, I, I try and push people and just figure out how authentic are they with their thoughtfulness. Have mm. they lived the problem that they are trying to solve? Like, why are they doing what they're doing? You know, to me, motivation matters a lot because it tells you a lot about what the person will do when things don't go well. Yeah. And so I don't know quite the, the analogy or, or I guess the corollary as it would be with, with, with filmmaking, but I imagine if somebody's wanting to create a film, knowing why they want to create that might really tell you a lot about how far they're willing to go to make it, make it a success. Yeah. I also think it's important to not look for certain things. So for example, I never ask people where they went to school or I never ask people how old they are, where they live, or basically indicators that people may think biased towards success, but actually have no relevance on success. You know, they're, mm -hmm. they're lagging indicators or actually they're not, even, they're not even indicators. They are, they are false patterns where mm -hmm. just because you had two kids who dropped out of Stanford who created Google doesn't mm -hmm. mean that those two white kids, again, from Stanford, are going to create the next Google, right? So, like, I try, and also doesn't mean that the, those two African-American women are not going to create the next Google. And so I try and, I try and be very aware of cognitive biases that we as a society have when making decisions as to mm -hmm. giving money or giving a job or basically giving something. Mm -hmm. Have you have you been has that part of the process of your career still been going on with the pandemic or has it mostly been supporting people that you've already selected? No, we're still we're still actively making new investments. We're still uh, uh, actively building new companies. Yeah. One of the things that I have continued to do as part of this pandemic is build out my team. You know, the venture capital and entrepreneurship world, unfortunately, is very white male dominated. It's starting to become just more male-dominated and folks of other different races are, are emerging, but um, not as fast mm. as they should be. And so one of the things that I've been doing is really building out our team to be very diverse. You know, mm -hmm. we have more black women than white men, which is something I'm actually quite proud of. And we have uh, folks of all races, of, of, you know, of, of all nationalities. And mm -hmm. that to me is hopefully will lead to better decision-making. It's yeah. better networks, better decision-making, better uh, a better eye and opportunity. Yeah. And we're going to continue to do that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Actually, I do mean, have a question on that. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. Lot, no, but, please. You know, when you talk about um, choose, building out your team, one thing that I've been um, quite, I've been thinking a lot about, especially during this pandemic, is who do I choose to associate with? Because it's, with everything being online, I think that that sense of self-agency is a lot higher now. So you, you decide who you, are, who you are connected with, who you want to live around. Uh, so I guess I, I'm curious as to who, who you think you want in your team. What kind of people do you look out for? Who do you want to be associated with? So our team consists of uh, two types of people. I have folks that are full-time, which are more on the investing team. And then I have folks that are what I call venture partners. Uh, the venture partners slash board partners, they are business and political leaders who join the boards of our companies. And what I look for there is experience in a world that I just don't have. And uh, what I have found is, first of all, there are a ton of people who have that, who have experience that I don't have. But I have found that People who are at the top of their field, no matter what the field is, whether it's music or whether it's politics or whether it's business, they have a drive and a, they, they have so much to give. You know, they have so much that they've learned by achieving the success that, that they've achieved. They've gone through so many hard times themselves because nobody's ever just risen. And they have a very unique network by being the top of their field, right? So that's one thing that, that we look for a lot. I mean, we have, we have a singer that we'll announce soon that is a venture partner for us. We have a former prime minister, you know, that, that's, that's a venture partner. So we have sort of folks of all different uh, ilks. And it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty fun when you have, uh, which we just had recently, you had, I do these Zoom partnership meetings 
where everybody comes together. And it's like you have the singer next to the prime minister, next to the business executive. And they, I don't know when else they would ever get together except this partnership meeting. So mm. it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to hear about the conversations too, you know, just hear their mm. banter before the meeting starts. Yeah. It's like often yeah. above, my, above my head. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's when it's most exciting, right? When you get to hear something that you would not be able to hear otherwise. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, because in terms of diversifying uh, your the people you surround yourself with, there's so many, it seems to me, there's so many levels on which you could diversify. And we've talked about a few, you know, there's gender, there's race, but then th- there's so many categories that could present you with a, a variety of, of ideas. How have you determined, or has your, you know, the people you've worked with determined which of those categories are best to, to try actively to diversify? Yeah, gender, race, sector, geography. I mean, there's been a lot of things. To me, actually, I did not have a targeted, I was not actively looking for gender diversity or racial diversity. What I was looking for were who are the people I admire the most, who I happen to know or can get to. Mm-hmm. Just happens that they were Mm -hmm. women of color, you know, in in most cases, actually. And then through them, I could get through, get to folks in different sectors or different geographies or different races or or whatnot. So I have just found as long as we as humans look for the very best people, then, and really make a concerted effort to find the very best people, irrespective of where they are, Mm -hmm. then you will have a natural diversity. Because guess what? the best people look different, you know, because if, if you're not, if you're, if you're, if you're not targeting the very best people, you're going to get people who look the same. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me that anything other than that approach is what leads to tokenism and people feeling like they're not actually there because you respect their ideas. So I, I have huge respect for that. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I mean, I care about racial diversity. I care about gender diversity. I care about geographical diversity, but like, that's not the reason we hired anybody. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. in fact, that was something we noticed after the fact. Oh, she's black. That's useful. Yeah. You know, or yeah. like, oh, he's white. I guess that's useful. Maybe not. <laughs> but like, you know, none of these things yeah. mattered. I mean, what mattered was how awesome is this person? And it just so happened that they were X or they were Y or they were Z. And that contributed to their upbringing. It has contributed to their experiences, contributed in many cases to their hardships. But uh, ultimately... You know, they have achieved what they have achieved, and we are really just thrilled to be associated with them. Yeah. You know, it's funny when we speak yeah, about things, doing things that are broken, but doing them right can make a positive change. That almost sounds to me like a, mer- a meritocracy done right. Yeah, and yes, I, you know, and I also don't want to act as if all meritocracies therefore lead to diverse yeah. outcomes, because that's not obviously always the case, but... I do think, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is if you work really hard to find the very best people across sectors, you will find diversity in almost everything that you look for. So it's really an excuse when people don't find diversity or people are just aren't working hard enough or they're not trying hard enough if they're coming up with the same set of people on any sort of slice you want to, you know, on, on any sort of way you want to slice it. That doesn't mean the society is perfect. doesn't mean that there is equal diversity or equal representation, right? And there obviously needs to be way more on almost every element that we look for. Uh, but it is there. And as long as you work hard enough, you will find it. I really enjoy this level of nuance when we're talking about, I mean, entrepreneurship, capitalism, diversity, that often doesn't get discussed. I, I think it's very easy to say, oh, capitalism sucks, or all diversity hires is is tokenism. Like, it's very easy to say those things. I guess as we begin to wrap up, how do you reconcile a changing world where it seems like we're very polarized? It seems like many people don't enjoy talking about these things with nuance. How do you think we go forward and make sure that these conversations, these very important conversations about everything from entrepreneurship and America to diversity and the way that you hire and the people that you surround yourself with. How do you make sure that we keep these conversations as they are and make sure that they're fully valid and fully delved deep into? 
I don't think I don't know if I'm the authority on this, but I would say <laughs> that I the one thing I've learned so far throughout my short life and career is that one of the most important human traits is empathy. And as long as we have empathy for what somebody is going through, whether we have been in their shoes or not, and most many of the times we just haven't been in their shoes. But as long as we have empathy, then you can have a productive conversation. You know? The moment when people don't have empathy and they think it's us versus them, they forget that we are far more similar than we are different, you know? And then it starts becoming a blame game or shifting of responsibility. And so as long as we approach everything with empathy, I think we as a, as a society will improve. Wow. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's so fascinating that you mentioned that in exactly those words, because I think I speak for Robert and Eli as well when I say that, that is exactly why we wanted to start this project. Kindling empathy and fostering that environment, which is conducive for empathy, is, in our opinion, one of the best things that we can do with our time, uh, particularly amidst this pandemic, but also just generally in life. Because if, if we do not realize, A, that we are similar in a lot of ways, but we're different as well, and we need to value each other, not despite those differences, but because of those differences, then we can never truly take advantage and really enrich our life by virtue of those differences. And then it, it's, life is very mundane when everybody's just the same. I agree. I mean, who would want to go to a restaurant where all you can eat is the same thing every day? You know? I mean, not me. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I agree. I com- and you couldn't have said it better. Fostering empathy is one of the most important things we can do. It's also why I think I'm optimistic for the future of this world, because one thing this pandemic has forced us to do is communicate virtually, and it has broken down even further the barriers between borders. And as a result, once we start talking to each other, we realize we can probably get along, you know? Absolutely. All we need to do is talk to each other. Shil, thank you for this wonderful conversation. We've talked about everything from your journey as an entrepreneur to now venture venture capitalist, how that's worked for you, and your amazing story of just overcoming some adversity to, to get to this point. We've had broad discussions on society at large and during this pandemic, the importance of coming together, the joys that you've reaped being with your family, playing tennis. Uh, those are just things that we all love to hear. And on a final note, you know, how do you find the best people around you? How do you surround yourself with important diversity that adds value to your team? So thank you so much for being here. Thank you guys for having me. This was a lot of fun. Keep doing what you're doing. The world needs more of it. That's too kind. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. This was our episode of Different Boats, Same Storm. We'll be back next week. Same time, different guest, different boat, same storm.